Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we are going to provide an update on Brexit. And we'll be joined by Professor Anand Menon. Anand is a director of the UK in a Changing Europe, which is a think tank based in London. He and his team of economists and political scientists and legal scholars have just put out a new report titled No Deal Brexit, Issues, Impacts, Implications. And listeners may be aware that this is our 100th episode, a very special one, and not just because we have Anand on. And as a treat, you are about to hear the new Trade Talks jingle. Hey now, this is Trade Talks, this is Trade Talks, talk, trade. And with that, let's begin. Anand, hello. Hello, how are you doing? Great. So, so, um, so apologies to all the British listeners who have had to, to live through every gory minute of this. But, but for the benefit of our listeners who haven't been following the minute-by-minute developments, can, can we just first talk about what has been going on with, with British politics? <laughs> um, so, so, so since we last spoke about Brexit on Trade Talks, there's, there's rather a lot that's happened. We've got a new prime minister, Boris Johnson. He said that Britain is going to leave the EU on October 31st, do or die. He's also tried to suspend parliamentary business until October the 14th. And then, and then on October the 17th, he's going to go to the EU to, to try to negotiate a new deal. So, Anand, have, have I missed anything out from all of that? Well, pretty much all you said with a few other things. Boris Johnson is not only our new prime minister, he's kicked out 21 of his own MPs from his party. So he no longer has a majority in parliament. The parties are breaking apart sort of as we speak. Uh, and the parliament has passed a law that says... Boris Johnson cannot take us out of the European Union with no deal at the end of October, as he said he would do, do or die. We have an election almost certainly on the horizon. And perhaps most interestingly and frustratingly of all, Brexit is exactly where it's been for the last year. In some structural senses, nothing whatsoever has changed. What what is this legal decision that the, the Scottish courts have made? Well, to go back to the beginning, the Prime Minister decided to prorogue, i.e. fully suspend Parliament. There was a massive fight about this in Parliament because opposition MPs said it might be his right to do so, but his motives were crooked because he was basically trying to sneak us out of the European Union while no one was looking. And so a group of MPs took this matter to the Scottish courts who have ruled that basically his decision to do so was illegal. This is not the last word on the subject because it now comes to the UK Supreme Court next Tuesday and they will make the definitive ruling on this. On October 17th, Boris Johnson is scheduled to go to the European Union to try to negotiate. What's he going to ask for? Well, this is your listener's favourite answer. I don't know. Uh, I wonder, actually, if he knows at the moment. He's not going to negotiate a deal there, that's for certain. If he's going to negotiate a deal, he has to do it beforehand, and that deal has to go to the European Council to be approved. And depending on who you listen to, there are two distinct stories here. There's the story from Boris Johnson himself. Negotiations are going great. We're making loads of progress. The Irish and the European Union are shifting their position. We're going to get a new deal that Parliament will be able to accept. If you talk to virtually anyone else, the European Union, opposition MPs, many civil servants, they will say, actually, the negotiations to date are a little bit of a sham. Uh, The British government has failed to come up with any new proposals. And so the European Union has nothing to negotiate. Now, 
That might be changing as we speak because this new law I spoke about that makes it illegal for us to leave the European Union on the 31st of October gives the Prime Minister a massive incentive to try and negotiate a deal because if he doesn't, his options are, I think, either to try and break the law, which is never a good idea if you're Prime Minister, or to write a letter to the European Union asking for an extension, which he has sworn blind he will never, ever do, or to resign as Prime Minister. So actually, given the options, getting a deal might suddenly look a lot more appealing to him. The problem is he needs to get a deal not only that the EU will agree to, but that Parliament will approve. And that, as ever, is going to be the sticking point. What do you think the chances are of a, of a general election before October 31st? Zero. Uh, at this point, it is too late for us to have an, uh, an election before the end of October, almost certainly, given that Parliament has been prorogued. Uh, and secondly, the opposition parties have made it clear that they will not vote for an election that is held before October the 31st. And the reasoning is quite interesting because there's a public reasoning and the reality. The public reasoning is if we give the prime minister the go ahead for an election before the 31st of October, he might then sneakily change the date when no one's watching and make it after the 31st of October so that we leave the European Union mid-campaign. I don't think that's going to happen. But the real reason is this. The opposition parties want more than anything else a photograph of Boris Johnson asking Brussels for an extension because the basis of Boris Johnson's electoral appeal at the moment is to both Conservatives and Brexit Party, i.e. Nigel Farage's pro-Brexit party supporters to say, I will get us out of the European Union, I will not delay. The logic on the opposition benches is once he's delayed, his electoral prospects will diminish. So they want that election to be in November rather than October. So you, you think the, the chances of a general election after October 31st, perhaps before, you know, before next spring, let's say, are, are fairly high? I'd say before Easter, 100%, before the end of the year, probably hovering in the high 80%. Right. I better register for my postal vote. Uh, so how could a no-deal Brexit still happen? Uh, a no-deal Brexit can still happen quite easily because whatever happens by way of an extension at the end of October, it remains the default outcome unless the British Parliament decides either to change its mind and not leave the European Union and stay in, or it agrees to a deal. And at the moment, it would appear as if there is no majority in Parliament for either of those things. So as long as that's the case the default option is that we leave without a deal. When the EU finally get fed up of giving us extensions, that is what will happen. Let's turn now to, you, to your report and what no deal would actually mean in practice. So let's start maybe by talking about the, the most immediate impact of this thing. What do we expect to happen? Is it, is it panic, financial Armageddon, crisis, recession? Talk us through, talk us through how this is going to shake out. Well, a lot of the impacts of no deal will be felt before it happens. So in that sense, the immediate shock on the day after might be mitigated by the fact that it's been spread out over time. So, for instance, I would expect the financial markets to react to a no deal while it was in the process of happening rather than just necessarily on the day after. Equally, I would expect a lot of businesses, in fact, I know a lot of businesses are engaged in stockpiling, in making plans to ensure that on the days immediately following no deal, which people are still working on the assumption of 31st of October, even though that is massively unlikely now, uh, to make sure that they are not involved in cross-border trade or commerce on that day in case of disruption. So, And the final thing to say about the first day, if it is the 1st of November, is that it's a public holiday across much of continental Europe. 
heavy lorries are not allowed on the roads of France on that day. So the chaos will not be as great as some of the doomiest doom-mongers have said. Over time, however, that impact will kick in because quite simply what no deal means is those multinational rules of the European Union that cover trade, transport, tourism, security, all our interactions with the European Union as a body will simply cease to apply in the United Kingdom. That will mean at a minimum massive uncertainty and almost certainly significant disruption at ports to trade to supplies. So I would expect that we would start to see shortages of some goods, maybe even shortages of medicines, queues at the border. And that's just the economics because remember that some of the political implications of this are every bit as serious. Which sectors are particularly exposed to this this immediate disruption of a no-deal Brexit? Well, all sectors, because, of course, this means that there are no special provisions governing our trade with our nearest and our largest trading partner. So some manufacturing industries that rely on just-in-time supply chains, so they, they count on getting parts at a precise time to and from the European continent, such as the automobile or the aerospace industries, will be very, very badly hit because they have enormous numbers of components crossing all the time. They work to tight schedules, and many manufacturers are talking about short-term closures or shutdowns of their plants while they absorb the impact of no deal in the short term. Uh, And then there are services industries. Uh, The financial services sector, which of course is an important sector of the economy here in the UK, will no longer benefit from the ability to trade with the European Union as if it were trading within a single country. That will affect business. Many banks have started to relocate some key functions to EU member states from London so that they're registered within the European Union. And services more generally will be hit by the fact that outside of EU rules, we have to prove that we abide by their rules. There'll no longer be an automatic equivalent of qualifications, for instance, so a British lawyer won't be able to rock up in Lisbon one day and appear in court because his qualifications will no longer automatically be accepted. Has there been a a bit of excessive preparation in, in warning about the, about the potential impacts of what a no deal would actually mean for, for businesses and consumers? My answer to that would be yes and no. Uh, and there are several parts of it. First, a bit of context for your listeners. Uh, the British government put out a series of forecasts before the referendum in 2016, one of which was a forecast about the short-term impacts of leaving the European Union, as in from day one after the referendum. And they predicted an immediate recession not least because they were predicting uh, consumer confidence plummeting. None of that happened at that time, which means that we're in a political debate in this country where people are very sceptical about forecasts. And I do think some people, particularly people who are committed to us remaining in the European Union, have talked in exaggerated terms about what the massive impact of no deal will be immediately after it happens. And I think they're leaving themselves open to that same accusation of peddling project fear and of exaggerating impacts for political purposes. And I think there is a structural reason why people are a little bit confused about this, which lies with government. On the one hand, government needs businesses to be ready for no deal and to make the preparations they have to make, signing up for customs uh, permits and things like that, which at the moment British businesses don't have to do when they trade with the European Union. At the same time, the government, whose official policy is leaving with no deal will be fine, doesn't want to talk up the impact of no deal because it undermines that claim. So there's been an ambivalence on the part of government that I think has made it very, very hard for people to figure out whether or not they should be taking this seriously. 
How do no-deal Brexit affect you know, day-to-day operations in, in Northern Ireland and along the border? Well, of all the places affected, uh, Ireland will be the most affected by Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland because you have a very, very, you have no border between North and South at the moment. A lot of businesses are split between North and South. If Britain falls out of the European Union with no deal, there will have to be a customs and regulatory border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. It means several things. It means chaos for those industries that have to trade across that border regularly. So you hear tell of uh, dairy farms where the cows are one side of the border, the the uh, bottling might be on the other side of the border, or the market's on the other side. Again, uh, there are massive 40-odd percent tariffs on dairy products imposed by the European Union. So that will drive many of those businesses simply out of business. But apart from the economics, which are pretty dire for Northern Ireland, there is also massive political significance here, because, of course, one of the achievements of the Good Friday Agreement and of membership in the European Union has been to obviate the need for a border down the middle of the island of Ireland. If that border comes back, there are a lot of people that are worried that with it will come the sectarian violence we thought we'd got rid of with the Good Friday Agreement. So what happens to EU citizens living in the UK uh, in the event of a no deal? Well, EU citizens have already had their rights uh, guaranteed. And even though they will lose some of the rights they enjoyed under EU law, they pretty much keep most of them. The real problem for the British government is if, as they have said, freedom of movement will end when we leave the European Union, that is a policy they simply cannot implement because we do not know who the EU citizens living in the UK are. So we will not be able to tell who those people are who have come in after we've left the European Union with no deal. So there will be uncertainty, and there has been uncertainty for many years for these people, as to their exact status, and it will be uncertainty that is exacerbated by the fact that the British state will simply be incapable of implementing the pol- its stated policy. What would this all mean for the security cooperation between Britain and the EU, policing, data sharing, that sort of thing? Well, it has all sorts of implications because one of the side effects of no deal is from the moment it happens, the EU switches off British access to the numerous databases that it holds, holding criminal records, passenger records and the like. And not only will Britain no longer have access to those records, but we will legally no longer be allowed to use any data that we've accessed from them in the past. And that puts British police and law enforcement agencies at a massive disadvantage when it comes to their work, because it simply means that a huge number of people who were on their radar will simply disappear from that radar. And the danger is that criminal gangs and the like, knowing this, will take an opportunity to relocate to the United Kingdom, because here they will be off the grid in a way they would not be under the current data sharing agreements. Oh, the, the wrong kind of trade being encouraged there. Absolutely. My last question is, what does this mean about the future of UK and EU trade relations? Is there anything to this theory that sometimes governments, countries just need to take extreme positions in order to improve upon their negotiated outcome uh, and that this could actually, this threat of a no deal, this potentially implementing no deal, could actually pay off for the UK over the long run with its negotiations with Europe? Well, let me say a couple of things. Firstly, if this tactic on the part of the British government is to pay off, it has to pay off by the end of October. Uh, Because if 
if we're going to get a deal, we need to use the threat of no deal to get a, a renegotiation that Boris Johnson is allegedly trying to carry out at the moment. The problem is, this is a threat that involves us getting hurt more than them. And I'd suggest that that's not the most effective kind of threat that you can brandish in a negotiation. Uh, once we've left with no deal, if we leave with no deal, we essentially have no more threats left in the locker. Uh, at that point, it is a question of whether and when the two sides re return to the negotiating table. You have to think a little bit about the political context of this. If we leave with no deal, it will cause disruption both here and in the European Union. What I fear will happen then is that political recriminations will ensue where both sides blame the other for the outcome and the mood sours very, very quickly. In those circumstances, it's hard to see an immediate return to the negotiating table. And the final thing worth saying is, if and when the sides do return to the negotiating table, the European Union has made it absolutely clear they're very happy to discuss trade with us, but only after those issues of the withdrawal treaty citizens' rights, the Irish border, and the Brexit bill that Britain owes are cleared up. So they will immediately insist on us addressing the issues that we have not addressed by not signing the withdrawal agreement that we've negotiated with them already. I think there's there's a view from, from some in Britain that they just, just want to get on with it, right? That, that no-deal Brexit is the, the cleanest, fastest way of, of Brexit happening, and, and we could just do that, and then, and then we can move on. Could you just explain why why exactly that's that's a kind of wrong uh, or incorrect view? Well, I'll say several things. A no-deal Brexit is at this point very clearly the fastest way for us to leave the European Union. But if by Brexit you mean not just that process, but the process of sorting out our future relationship with the European Union as well, then far from being a clean Brexit, it is the dirtiest imaginable form of Brexit. Because as I've just said, the politics after we've left will be poisonous. We'll still have to negotiate a future trade deal. We'll have to do so in circumstances where both sides are angry and distrustful. And so the danger is that the no-deal Brexit will make this process drag on far, far longer than any other end to the Brexit process would. And so we will be trapped in this mire for the foreseeable future. I think that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Anand Menon, who is the director of the UK in a Changing Europe. Be sure to check out their new report called No Deal Brexit Issues, Impacts, Implications. We'll be sure to post it on the episode page at our website. That is www.tradetalkspodcast.com. Thank you also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because appearing on your podcast twice is far better than doing it once. We agree. We almost forgot to thank Simea's Madrigal Club for supplying us with our new and very special theme music. Hey now, this is Trade Talks. This is Trade Talks. Talk. Trade.